You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Let's set the premise here. First of all, have you ever thought you'd be on a running podcast, Dr. Clary? <laughs> Me? Oh, no, I don't run. The only, time, the only time I run is when I have my knees wrapped at a world championship and I'm, tr- and I'm running out of time to get on the platform before I'm timed out. So that's the only time I move fast. <laughs> I, I, should, I shouldn't be so hard on myself. You know, I was a football player. I did, um, I did field events. I threw shot and discus in high school. And they made us run. But I'm not designed to be a runner. I always look like there's, there's two types of people in the world through evolution. There's guys like me that pick up a rock and throw it at the saber-toothed tiger. Or guys like you that run away from the saber-toothed tiger. Wait, no, we run, we run it down. Right? <laughs> you run it down and wrestle with it. Well, that's the hybrid we're going to be talking about today. Strength endurance, you, you know, getting a little of both. Um, but the interesting thing is, is, you know, both types of athletes have, have evolved. And uh, so it's interesting how, you know, when you look at the two, the two types of training systems, if you take a step back and just study the biology, how you can p- apply a little of each to each um, brand. I, we're going to dive into that. Okay. I, uh, but I want to wait on that too, because I want to know, um, first of all, just to set the stage here. So this is Dr. Fred Clary. Uh, how long have we known each other, would you say? Do you know when I first came in? Six, eight years? Yeah. Is it six to eight now? I mean, it's got to be eight. It's been a while. And and I will say to Bill, so you are, um, could you tell the people what you're, like you're a neurological chiropractor. Could you tell the people what your title is? Sure. You know, I, I'm a doctor of chiropractic. And then I went back and did some uh, further training in neurology. So I'm a clinical chiropractic neurologist. And I also train other chiropractors to, uh, to be neurologists. And that just means I, I spent more time in school and spent way too much money um, to further myself. My practice is not the normal chiropractic necks and backs. Um, I do get a lot of those, but I would say half my practice is like strokes, um, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy. I do a lot of neurological things. And then the other half of my practice is working with meatheads, athletes, and trying to take a neurological approach to it. Like when someone comes in and they have a bad back or a knee and an ankle and they're a runner, I want to see a video of their gait. You know, I want to see what you look like when you're jogging. I want to see a full sprint because many times that knee problem is coming from a different area because the muscle firing sequence is off um, because of an old injury or something happened. And the cool thing about the central nervous system, the motor programs, is we adapt very quickly. So you hurt your knee, you get a limp, right? Immediately. The limp is to take weight off of it. Well, once you, if you have a limp for like two months, then you rehabilitate it, maybe even get surgery. Guess what happens? Sometimes that motor program stays in there. And so you, so you're not firing, you're firing your hamstring late. You're firing your glute late. And they get into some type of race like you guys get and they tear themselves up. I twisted my ankle. 
I've never been the same since I hurt my knee. Well, of course not. You're not the same. We have to bring you back. And that, that takes a keen eye. And that's a little different than, you know, slapping someone in the butt with a snow shovel and hoping it, it all works out. Is that a, a common industry practice? <laughs> snow shovel to the butt? <laughs> well, that's actually a comment I make all the time is um, when someone comes in from another chiropractor or physical therapist, and unless those, those uh, professionals are very trained with athletes, that, you know, they're just basically rubbing Ben Gay on them and slapping them in the butt with a snow shovel. Um, you have to look at the specific injury. And the first thing that is always injured, even you fall down, hit your knee, is your nervous system. Because it the first thing it wants to do is protect the body, right? So you have a shoulder problem. It's going to protect that joint. So you're going to change how the mechanics of the shoulder works. For example, if I raise my hand up, my shoulder blade should glide out. You're going to find that with a lot of your clients. If they injured their shoulder, that that, that shoulder blade doesn't move as, far, as fast. So then, you know, what was a little minor problem starts tearing down the tendons in the shoulder. So that's like looking at movements globally when someone moves. And that's a whole different approach to chiropractic. Bracken, uh, you mentioned two things. You meant a hurt knee and then a rolled ankle. And Bracken's got both of those right now, don't you, Bracken? <laughs> well, I don't have a hurt knee. Uh, I probably do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had two uh, meniscectomies. Okay. In 2020. Okay. So, so, but yeah, just yesterday I rolled my ankle on a, on a trail run. Yeah. And, and that's something to look at too, is like, you know, do you have, do you send out for gait analysis coaches? You know, do people look at your gait and say, you know what, for the way you run, you're, you know, you have too much follow through with your upper arm, you know, because if your arms swing too far forward, you're putting more weight um, on, you know, your quads and your tibialis posterior. And you got wimpy ankles now. So a lot of times I'll uh, adjust or manipulate or treat someone. I'll screw them up from a good gate just so they can get through the injury and then put the good gate in later. For example, if you got a bad knee, a bad ACL, um, the anterior cruciate ligament keeps the tibia from moving forward. So you have to you have to have more hamstring tone on that side to keep your shin bone from like flopping out of your skin. Well, what I'll do is make them, you know, bring that that running stance, you know, as excuse me, gait as they're going, bring it back toward the heel a little more as opposed to forward. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Just to give that hamstring a little rest. And so that changes how you do things. Do you do hills? Do you go up hills? Do you go down hills? It changes your until they're healed up. Then you got to put them back into, you know, normal gait mechanics. So, yeah, it's a little different than, you know, oh, I got a sore neck. Twist it. You know, yeah. Well, it's interesting because my personal experience with this, you kind of illuminated what I'd been feeling for many years, and and then finally recently just kind of pulled the plug on. I, I had a chiropractor who is a I would call a savant okay, athletically. Excellent. He cool. worked with Olympic speed skaters. He worked with uh, professional MMA fighters, world champs. And he he just had that ability to look at a body. You'd walk in and be like, oh, what did you do to your hip this week? Yep. You know, that kind of thing. That's that's Dr. Clary. But yeah, and he knew it. And yeah. he retired a few years ago. Oh, man. The, his nephew took over the practice. And he's fantastic, but he doesn't have that. 
And I tried to make it work for a while. And finally, at the beginning of this year, I stopped going back because it was it was general practice. There was no mm-hmm. athletic savant to what he was doing. And and I, I say savant because I don't think it can be fully learned. Like you can teach it to Ooh. someone, but if you don't have the talent, you don't become like, yeah, yes, anyone can learn your techniques, but not everyone can paint a masterpiece with them. That's true. I was spoiled by the masterpiece, and now I'm trying to find that next one. Well, the interesting thing is I uh, invented my own technique to be able to do this quickly. It's called functional analysis based on movement, breathing. Um, and I've been teaching this since like 2006. I wrote a book in 2006 on it, and I've been teaching the technique um, just two weeks ago, I was in Wisconsin, o- Eau Claire, Wisconsin, um, at a friend's clinic. We had like 30 docs show up. And you're right. I would say I would say 25 could mechanically do it, but five had the eye, right? Had the eye to see that. And mm-hmm. those are the ones I love to work with because I don't have to sit there for an hour explaining how the knee bone can affect the hip bone. You know, it's like they can see it. They can see the muscle firing pattern. Um, yeah, I, I work with MMA people too. They hire me to watch their opponents so I can tell them what their old injuries are so they get hurt. <laughs> I don't know if that's dark or not, but it pays well. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually quite amusing to hear. I um, You know, the first time, I don't know if you remember this, but what I want to do is this, by the way. I don't know you much beyond when our relationship started like six, eight years ago. And I kind of want to get a bit of your background and all oh, of that, yeah. you know, too. And then I want to build up to um, – to your philosophy on like strength training, building raw power for maybe the weaker endurance athlete, and then uh, whatever, wherever the conversation takes us. But do you remember what you said to me one of the first times I was in? You called, you just said Bracken had these weak ankles, right? You just made a side comment. You were feeling around my back and you said, well, you tore both of your rhomboids. They're the most pathetic, wimpy rhomboids I've ever felt, you told me. And I was like, but I can do 35 pull-ups. You're like, well, you got wimpy ass rhomboids. Oh, no. Never forget that. And I've been thinking about my little rhomboids ever since, Dr. Clary. <laughs> well, let, let me fill you in why I'm I'm brutally honest. I, I'm from Baltimore originally. So my name's Fred Clary. I'm from yeah, I'm East Coast. I'm from Baltimore originally. Went to University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, I was a power lifter. I've been lifting weight since oh 1981. Um, when I was 13 or 14, um, competing. And I started training with men, started competing, you know, banging up, you know, a little bit here. I was basically their plate servant, loading the barbell, doing things. They would let me train with them. Um, By the time I was 16, I was beating men. And by the time I was 17 or 18, I couldn't be beat. Um, I was the first teenager to deadlift 800 pounds um, back in the 90s, right out of Cairo school. I squat at 940, and um, my bench has always been my weakest, only because I have very long arms and I have bad shoulders. I just had shoulder surgery a year ago. So my bench always hovers around 500, 550. That's a pathetic bench, isn't it? It is, especially when my training partners do six or seven. So I I just had my shoulder redone, and I'm really working on my mechanics because I want to go over 600 because, uh, you know, I, I think there's women stronger than me. In, in my sport. So I, I just got to do more. But I tra- I competed against like the Soviets and studied Soviet training, um, been all over the country, you know, competing in powerlifting. 
And this, I had a bad uh, low back, still do. In 1988, I was 20 years old and decided to retire. 20. And so I'm looking to do one more meet. I go to this meet in spring of 1988, the, the Open Nationals. I should have won it, but I was so beat up. I think I got sixth or seventh. It was terrible. And I'm like, you know, 300 pounds, you know, soaking wet without this beer belly. And uh, probably, you know, under 10% body fat. I, you know, I had abs at 300 pounds. Not ripped like you guys, but I had abs. And uh, there's this little chiropractor with a portable table in, you know, working every working on the lifters in the warm-up room. And he walked up to me and says, hey, I can help you, you know, with your bad back. And I'm like, what are you going to do? You're a quack. I was pre-med. I was going to be a cardiologist, you know, had my seat um, at University of Pittsburgh Medical School. I was looking at because they have really great uh, at that time in the 80s cardiology training. And I'm like, you know, this quack can't help me. I laid down and I figured he, I, he can't hurt me. My thigh was bigger than his whole torso. So I laid down and in five minutes he got me out of pain for the first time in six months. I realized I was ignorant, ignorant, lack, lack of knowledge. And went and studied and within a few months moved to the cold ass Midwest here, um, you know, to, for chiropractic school. And I haven't left since. So that's kind of my background. I, um, I, started, I started competing again, took some time off to uh, host and run bodybuilding shows, powerlifting shows, um, help out with strongman events. And then, uh, you know, just recently, about six years ago, seven years ago, I decided to start training so my kids could see me compete. And I've won the Masters Worlds um, in 2018 and in this year in COVID time, um, which was this year was easy because the Germans, and Ukrainians couldn't make it through quarantine. So I'm like, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully you don't put an asterisk after that medal, but, you know, it's fun. When you're back, when you're younger, you said you started powerlifting. I actually want to dive into a question I have with you that sure. now that you're more studied, you were 13, 14 powerlifting. Would yeah. you, knowing what you know now, would you have told yourself back then to hold off and not put your body under heavy load? Or is a 13, 14, 15 year old old enough to handle that stress? Oh, they're absolutely old enough to handle that stress. Um, I've destroyed, you know, my low back, I would say, and, and maybe you guys can talk about this too. It was more occupational because, um, and the way we trained, we used what, what was called Western periodization, where you just slowly increase volume. They do that in endurance training too. Slowly increase volume. Then you take a day or a week or two weeks off. Then you do your competition and you start back. And we know that's not the best way to go. Now we use different cycles, different phases. We call them waves, like a wave, different waves of training to help uh, your nervous system adapt. Um, but I would say, you know, eight years of college hurt my back more because, you know, I'd sit around all day in, in, in college and, you know, there's, you guys know what that's like. And then I'd get up and go to the weight room. There was no like half hour warming up, stretching, prehab, right? You know, just mm -hmm. preparing the body. We, we just never did that. We just went, you know. Um, my, my coach, uh, who's passed away now, Bob Rude was one of the greatest masters power lifters of all time, but he, you know, he, he was an old school guy. Right. And he would say, you never see a cheetah warm up, you know, you never see a cheetah stretch before it goes for an antelope. Why do we need to, 
And of course, unfortunately, that got into my head. And so in my teenage years, we didn't do any of that. And I, like I said, I was already damaged by age 20, you know, so I was probably relying on youth, you know, and genetics, but it'll catch up to you if you don't do prehab. So to answer your question, I would definitely, you know, say, all right, teenagers, go for it. But we're a little smarter nowadays. Here's how you put together your program. Fred, I was yeah. obsessed with cheetahs growing up <laughs> <laughs> to the point that uh, my brother, his, uh, we named him a Thompson's gazelle and okay. I would chase him on all fours around the house as our playtime <laughs> for years, every Halloween for like five straight years, I had a homemade cheetah costume and we went to the zoo. Finally, they, they got some cheetahs and I waited all winter to go. So we went in spring and I could not wait. I had waited all year to see this cheetah and we got there and there was this ancient geriatric oh. stiff legged cheetah just stiff leg hobbling back and forth across the enclosure it hit me on that very day yeah. cheetah should stretch <laughs> because that thing that thing was not very old it's just you don't see old animals in the wild because they die as soon as they throw their back out you you know you're absolutely correct and that's you know that that goes to say it's like you know I'm 53 you know I have a training partner who's like 56 he deadlifts like 700 pounds and um, we, we do a warm up routine now. And then we do a cool down routine now. Um, things that were unheard of 20, 30 years ago. So I think, uh, you know, applying a little science to it. And then when I hear, just like you, you kind of uh, alluded to, when I hear that someone says, wow, you don't need that much warm up. You don't need to do Pilates beforehand. Because uh, did you ever see the world champions do that? And I go, how long did they last? How long did they last in their sport? Now, Carl Lewis, and that goes back, what, 80s, you know? Carl Lewis, the reason he was still able to compete in the Olympics to he's 35 at a high level is he had a prehab routine, a warm-up routine, and a cool-down routine before he would jump, you know? And I think that's very important besides how you do – you know, your tempo and, and uh, threshold training and interval training, even if you're an, endur if you're an endurance athlete, your hills, how, how you work that out, all your gradients, you still have to have like, you know, that piece, that physiological training that every athlete, whether you're strength athlete, endurance strength, um, or pure endurance athlete, you still need that piece. I want to follow up before we continue on that. One more about the youngsters in the weight room. Um, I was told, and I'm still sort of under the belief. It's just, I know you're the guy to ask about this. You know, obviously the muscles can handle the strain and the load and such, but it's those attachments, those tendons and ligaments that can sometimes bear the problems of strength training, especially at a young age. How do you, is that one true? Like, is that like you take a 10 year old, say, yeah, let's not, let's not put that 10 year old under a hard strength program because his body can't handle the adaptation yet. Is there truth to that? At 10? Yes. You can do, you can injure their growth plates with heavy weight. 10. Yes, maybe. And this is, this is how uh, training has evolved. So back in my day, um, after I got out of Cairo school, I came back when I was, and I squatted like 940 or something insane. Um, but I would load up with 1050 or 1100 pounds 
walk out with it and hold it. Now, why would I do that? I'm not training muscles except a isometrically static hold, but it was to train the joints, the fascia, the joint capsule, and the tendons. And that's the most overlooked part of an endurance athlete. This is an endurance athlete podcast is you guys forget that stuff all the time. And that's why you twist an ankle. Oh, I'm jogging. I twist an ankle. Well, your, your ligaments suck. You got the ligaments of a baby, of a toddler, you know, and you're, and you're, you're 160 pounds ripped trying to do a Spartan race and you want to run on those chicken legs. And I mean, chicken legs, not muscle because a lot of the muscles there, it's, it's the joints. So part of your prehab or somehow in your training, you have to incorporate static holds and overloads. Now, if you're if you're a Spartan racer, you don't you don't need to walk out if you if you're a 300 pound squatter, you don't need to walk out with 350. What you need to do is get under the bar and just push up and hold, right? And just tighten up all the ligaments and tighten that joint capsule. When's the last time you tightened your ankles up and held it for 10 seconds? Right? Probably no, never, right? Probably no. Well, yeah, explain that. How would you do that? Easy. It's called a wall. <laughs> so you could just sit in a chair, do like a calf raise against the wall in front of you, right? And push as hard as you can. Luckily, the chair's stable. You're not going to go anywhere. But just tightening that joint, right? You know, I could do one here if this table didn't move. I would just push and you do a five count or a 10 count. And then that's it. So you could use a, like a power rack, right? That's um, pressed into, that is drilled into the floor and just push it left and right. That type of isometric training is almost always forgotten in endurance athletes. And it's not, it's not that you're trying to get super strong, but you're trying to force collagen to be laid down in your ligaments and tendons. And the only way it does that is overload. It's not magic. You can't sprinkle pixie dust and all of a sudden you got a tighter ankle. It doesn't work that way. You can do all the little reps with the rubber bands, rehab you want. You're still building muscle and you need muscle, but you need stability, especially when you guys go up like hills that you've never seen before. I mean, you guys hit these potholes and dirt. I'm like, oh my God, you guys are so unstable. It looks like watching toddlers run, you know? And um, the, this is not my stuff. This is like uh, the Russians were doing this in their Olympic training for a lot of their athletes um, back in the 70s and 80s. They always incorporated isometrics. And if you translate the Russian, they would say, well, this is not for, this is not for muscle growth. It is for joint strengthening, whatever that meant. And what they meant is they're tightening up the joint capsule, the fascia, the ligaments and tendons. You have to load them to make them, you know, grow. And you're not talking more than 10 minutes a week because our bodies are amazing. They're adapt. But if you're not doing it, think about this. You know, you guys are endurance athletes. How long have you been doing it? Most of your life, decades, right? You're still using the same connective tissue in your ankles you had before you started training. You still have your middle school ankles. Wow. Think about that. Think about that. So it's got to be incorporated into it. Um, and so that's something to think about as like injury prevention or prehab. 
You know, everyone thinks stretching and rolling out on a form. That's good. You know, moving muscle and stuff, you know, grab that power rack and try to do a pull up and hold, you know, overload it just for a few seconds. You'd be amazed at um, your how your stability comes into play. You know, Kirk, you're futzing with something. I see that. Yeah, I've got you can't read it, but I've got notes right here. Uh, I took from one of Hunter McIntyre's videos. Uh, Fred, you don't know Hunter, but he's probably the strongest endurance athlete in our sport. And he came to us after he had established himself in the strength world. Awesome. And two weeks ago, Kirk, I don't know if you noticed, he posted videos of him doing isometric work. Ah! And I wrote down, I need this. And then he showed a video. He just got under the bar, front rack position, yep. walked out, held for 10 pulsed for five, yep. held for 10 and re-racked. And he got so many people on there like, oh, you call that depth. You call that like, oh, what no. is that? You feel tough. You put 400 on the bar, but you can't squat. And he replied like, I'm not doing this for strength. And it's interesting that I immediately thought, I wonder if there's something to that. And here Fred comes on and he tells us why there's something to that. Yeah. And it's stability. Doesn't it echo? We have this conversation about somebody named Taylor Cruz. Mm -hmm. And joint mobility being mm -hmm. sort of the key to unlocking range of motion and fluid biomechanics. It's not right. the muscle bellies themselves. It's where the it's where the muscles attach to the joints. Mm -hmm. And so the joints seem to play into both sides of the conversation, the strength piece, the stability piece, and then actually like the, um, what would you call it? Like the range of motion piece even. As well. So functional range of motion is what I would call it, not active or passive. So active is what you can do just sitting here. Functional range of motion is the range of motion you can call upon during your athletic activity. And then you got passive range of motion with someone you're laying there, someone can yank it. All three of those ranges of motion are different. And this is important to understand. You are never going to beat your nervous system. So if you got a little tweaky injury, say my right shoulder, um, you know, and it's tweaky, I could do full range of motion sitting here. But you put it under a load, which activates your cerebellum, which is the motor part in the back of your head. You activate that. It may shut down your full range of motion because it knows at peak, at peak ranges, you have no strength because you're a toddler. So, so guess what? You can do all that flow, fluid stretching and all that. You go run, you still twist your ankle. So the gentleman you were talking about, that is learning to tighten up the joint. Because we have these little special nerve endings called proprioceptors, mechanoreceptors in our nerve in our joints. Now I know your listeners can't hear me, but close your eyes, put your hand behind your head, wiggle your fingers. How do you know your fingers are wiggling? You can't see them. We have these special nerve endings that tell us my fingers are moving. They give constant feedback, like a thermostat, constant feedback to the brain saying, how healthy is that joint? Because if I go to peak range of motion, you're going to tear. Sorry, your, ner your nervous system is going to protect that joint. So, so part of that training is not only getting all that mobility and fluid movement. Fluid movement looks real great in, in a training table. But throw them up a hill at the end of a Spartan race. Let's see what you can do. And that's where that feedback comes from, from the joint to the brain saying, you know what? We're a little tweaky and you got these toddler ankles. I ain't giving you full range of motion. So guess what happens? You're running on the trail, you twist an ankle. So it's a nice balance. And most people don't realize this. Um, I'll use uh, 
Adrian Peterson, uh, the, the Minnesota Vikings running back. He was here in Minnesota for 10 years, blew out his ACL twice. He, he did the first surgery, got it repaired. They rehabbed him, and I'm watching on Channel 5 Sports. Look at him. He's running, and I'm like, he's going to blow it out first day he gets back on the field. He's going to blow it out. And, you know, whoever I was sitting with watching it said, well, why is that? He's still running like he's got a knee injury. He never retrained his nervous system, even though his knee is probably stronger than the other one after surgery, right? They put cadaver in. They did all this stuff, rehab. It's amazing. But he got out there functionally. He tried to cut and he tore it again because, you know, his hamstring came on too much. He didn't have, like you said, the flowing range of motion and mechanics, and he blew it out again. Like, so that, that's a nice balance between, all right, I got full range of motion, but functionally, can I call upon it when necessary? And here's another one, functional strength. You know, I, I know way too many people that can move big weights, but, you know, if they were playing football, they'd get destroyed, right? You know, there's a reason, you know, you don't see powerlifters that bench 700 pounds playing for the NFL because it's sports specific. So, you know, where, where do you want to put that strength endurance and can you call upon that strength after a long day of racing? You got to throw that sandbag over your shoulder, run up a damn muddy hill. Can you call upon all your joints to stabilize on an uneven surface and actually get a decent time. That's a whole different way of training, totally different way of training. And like you said, sometimes you got to put 400 pounds, put it in the front squat position and do some pulses. Like you said, the, the Russians pulse, I'll do pulses too. Like, you know, we would just put a heavy weight on and just do like eight squats, quarter squats, right? Just to get used to it. And you throw it back and you're done. You know, one set, you're done because your 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 body, your physiology will throw collagen, will throw calcium at that joint. And all of a sudden you have a tighter, more functional joint, which neurologically will come into play at the end of the race or the end of the meet or the end of the contest, whatever sport you're in. And that's where I see where most uh, injuries, I've been doing this 29 years, most athletic injuries are not a problem of reduced passive range of motion of the affected joint. No way. It's can you call upon that strength and functional range of motion when you're in the athletic activity? And that's totally, totally related to stability. This uh, this conversation started when I asked about um, children weightlifting. Yeah. So, so <laughs> well, well, well. The point I, I guess I'm getting at is I think you were the segue in the fact that if the joints, once we can make sure the joints can handle the load, then they can safely they can correct. safely then weightlift. Okay, which makes sense. I, I, I want you to walk me through. So you talk about uh, joint uh, strength, joint stability. Um, I'm curious now. I want you to walk me through, like, at least what I think is the three major joints in the lower leg and the range of motion of the run would be the ankle, the knee, and the hip. So I'm. can you walk me through maybe some of the best things for each of those three? Sure. So you would, uh, you would get a power rack that's already, you know, drilled into uh, the floor. Or you could use a pole, <laughs> you know. You could, use, you could go outside where, you know, the old clothes pole your mom had, you know, that's in the ground. You could use a telephone pole. Um, you put your leg out. Now you got to be stable. So I, I like seated position because then you're not worried about your balance. Um, you can sit and then you would put your foot against that pole 
and and push in an e version. Then you would move it on to the other side of the pole and push. Well, it. What's e version for people? E version is out. Foot so you, out, put, you out. put the outside of your foot next to the pole and push hard. Push as hard as you can into the pole. Yep, hard as you can. Uh, are you rotating it or moving the whole leg? Uh, nope, just the ankle. Just so you, the ankle. Yep. So I'm going to answer your question. You should do stability. You should isolate all the stabilities and then do a global one. So let's let's just do one I do for I give my athletes now. So you push against the pole in inversion too, big toe, you know, against it. And you push in, you push in, maybe 10 seconds, maybe five. You know, I don't want grandpa passing out, you know. So you just keep pushing. And then for the knee, very similar. You can, you know, you can put your foot, you know, um, against the heel against the pole. So your back is facing the pole and try to pull up like a leg curl and just tighten that knee. The goal is not to try to be an incredible Hulk and knock down the telephone pole. I mean, your neighbor is going to see you straining out there doing weird stuff anyway, but you just pull up and then you can do the same thing with the quad. Um, I've seen people with just setups like this. They look like monkey bars, right? But low level monkey bars and they just get their foot under there and they do a leg extension, leg curl. Same with the hip. The hip, you really want to just do pure rotation in and out. Imagine you have your leg completely straight. You're laying down and turn at the hip, rotate your thigh out, rotate your thigh in. But now you want to do it against an immobile force. So you can use a pole. You can use the power rack. Power rack's easier because you just lay down on the utility bench and move it around, right? Would your, would your, so your foot is, if, let's just to, to clarify. So for the ankle, you'd be seated, legs would be bent, and you would push out or in to that yep. pole and hold, okay? For the knee, you're talking, you'd put your back to the pole, grab the, yep. and put your heel into the pole and pull up and hold almost like a isometric hamstring contraction. It's just, that's exactly what it is. But, okay. But the goal is you're not trying to do reps or time. You're trying to go fast and hard for 10 seconds. And you will cramp. The muscles will cramp the first couple times you do it. But the idea is to tighten that joint. And then physical therapists call it um, close packing. And then there's loose packing of the joint. That's close packing the joint where you tighten everything up. Okay. Um, and that's what our goal is to develop those cross fibers. So when the joints under the most tension that you can still have a functional range of motion. And that's a big deal. And then for the hip, you could just, you could just lay on a bench, shove your leg against it and you just want to rotate it in and out. Your thigh. So that would be, so your ankle would be locked. Your knee would be locked. Yeah. And then the hinge, you're, you're just literally take, if your foot's pointed straight forward, you're rotating the whole leg. You're not yes. flexing the ankle at all. Correct. Correct. You're just pushing out with that leg. Yeah. You want you want to tighten up that joint capsule in the hip, which none of you guys do. Um, which it, the endurance people they just ah, forget the hip. I can't tell you how many hips I've seen in marathon runners and CrossFitters and you know all these things because no one specifically tightens up that hip joint. And I'm like, oh my god, you know, it's so easy to tighten that thing up. And again, if you don't know how, especially like if you're working with your clients, you just grab their thigh and say, turn it in, turn it out, and go as hard as you can. Um, they're not going to be able to generate much force. So you can hold them with your hands. Well, now, now before Bracken gets to his two, the last one I want to ask then is, why, why do you believe that 
okay, if we're running up and down mountains and we're carrying heavy shit and it's very demanding on the body, why is that not enough then? Why is, if we're, if we're training what, how we're competing, right? Then mm-hmm. why is that not enough? Why are our ankles still middle school ankles? If, is there some adaptation in your opinion there? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I, I want to be clear because people, that's my East Coastness. If you're just doing pure Western periodization, we start low and go high with your volume. You do sports specific training. You will get in shape. You will get some ankle stability, you know, but the idea is not to train sports specific. The idea is to train to win, which means you have to train for the higher mountain. You have to train for what's higher. You want to, and and I got to be careful with this, overtrain. Now, everyone says, oh, you don't want to overtrain. You break down your muscle and all that. No, 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 no. You, you want to, you want your body stronger than it needs to be on the day of competition. You want your glycogen metabolism and shuttling, you know, if you're an endurance athlete, better than it needs to be on the day of competition. I can't tell you how many uh, endurance athletes I see, triathletes, they look like they're dead at the end of the day. And yes, it's demanding. But my question is, why don't you train so that the day of the competition, you winning is 85%. Preach. That makes sense. So mm-hmm. like in the lifting world, even in Olympic weightlifting, the Soviets would train to 110%. It's the style I use. You know, if you're, if you're squatting 900 pounds in training, when you do 850, it's still tough, but your body doesn't break down. And here's the thing, in training, you can do this overload training. You can overload the body because it's in what? A controlled environment. It's safer, right? I can go up this hill. I got ice packs here. I'm not doing a full day event. So you can overtrain. So I always tell people, you know, we we use what's called a a wave, uh, a Soviet wave, where you're using percentages of perceived effort. And you go up to 110%. Now you're at 100% the day of the meet. Could you imagine you winning or getting up on the podium with only giving 90% effort? Wouldn't that be fun? You can. That's that's how the top athletes train. They don't give you all the secrets, but I happen to like work with them and laugh. And it's like, yeah, you don't tell everyone this. Because everyone trains to the meet and at the meet or competition, that's their max effort. Where you're going to do what? And you guys know this. You're going to get hurt, right? You're going to fry the nervous system. Or with endurance, you're going to really screw up, you know, your glycolytic um, shuttling system. So you're going to be sick and your muscles are going to resist that. You're going to have so much lactic acid built up. That's insane. Um, So why don't you train at 110 and compete at 100? Does that make sense? It does. And it's crazy that it takes a power lifter to tell us <laughs> it's, it's accurate. Yeah. There's, there's a re like that's, that's the perfect reply to people who say, why do marathoners have to do hundred mile weeks when you can get Thank away you. with 80? Yes. 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 You can get away with it. Yeah. But there's a difference between getting away with it and being able to control the race once you're in it. Yeah. So the race, the competition, the meat, the performance, the game, that's different because you all these external variables are going. You don't want to be at you don't want to be at 110 or even 100. percent You're going to get hurt. 
You want to be at 90%, right? You want a little margin for the error of the environment. Oh, I'm going to run the marathon. It's raining. It's cold. Well, I only have to give 90%. Oh, you won, right? Um, my nutrition was off. I was a little sick. Whatever it is, I've never seen this hill before. Oh, my God, the judges are jerks. You know, you want to, so that's why you should be able to train. Um, I know some people train 120%. Um, they're always pushing the envelope and in endurance and in lifting, they're always at 120%. They compete at a hundred. So guess what? The day, the day of the meet, they look ice. They're having good time. They're smiling. They're like, thank God the competition's here because now I can relax and win because my training is so intense. Does that make sense? It does. And yeah. you're right. When you are at max capacity, mm -hmm. it takes one variable yep. to break. When you're submaximal, you can absorb it. And you're hurt. I, I work with these people all the time. I mean, they, you know, they pay our mortgage and, you know, all the shoes for all my teenage daughters and all their stuff. The, the, the current way that people train in America is just loaded for injury. You just have to remember, like, you know, <clears throat> I, I like uh, the way some football teams have been doing it now. They call it fourth quarter strength. And then um, there was this weird guy named Brian Billick in New England. And he says, we don't train for the fourth quarter. And they're like, what do you mean? We have to have endurance to keep going. No, we train for overtime. And at the end of four quarters, you're not spent. You train for overtime. That's a whole different philosophy. And it, again, I don't like to use the word overtraining because because it has so many physiological contexts. Maybe we should call it overloading. Maybe you guys can come up with a better word. Um, that, <laughs> We're following though. Yeah, the, the Russian term is like peak max, they call it. Um, and I don't think, I, I hate that word. It doesn't make sense. Is that 100%, 105%, you know? But if you're always at 110, 120%, when they when it comes and you say you only have to pull 85, I mean, you're going to smoke the competition. You're going to feel good about it. You're going to recover faster, be able to do more races in the year. But again, your training is hell. The contest won't be. That's mm -hmm. a whole different way of looking at things. Well, and you're in the endurance world, you know, we have versions of, you know, overspeed training, for yep. example, or um, the long run, which is significantly longer than like, say, how long we're going to be on feet in the race. Right. And ideally, we combine the two on race day and they come together. But we always say, like, you know, race day should be maybe the second, third, fourth, fifth hardest workout of your month. Yeah. Race day. Yeah. It's not the first or second. And that way, at least every time you toe the line, nothing is unexpected. But it's also very interesting. And I know, Bracken, you still got to get to your questions, but like, it's very interesting to one, talk about that in performance, and then two, talk about that on like staying healthy, right? Yeah. Because there's, there's, you're talking about both things simultaneously, and it takes both to put them together to compete your best, which is like on the injury front right now, Bracken and I are, are a little bit, you know, on the struggle bus. So it's it's just like an interesting topic to to chat out. So I'm glad we're addressing it. Well, and, and, and that, and there's no fault of your own. Um, a lot of this stuff with the Soviets – you know, with the fall of the Soviet uh, empire and the fall of the wall, you know, a lot of this information came out. You can get a lot of this stuff online. Some of it's just being translated, um, but they had millions of <laughs> humans. They used as guinea pigs to figure this all out. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. 
You know, uh, many people have already met many sports scientists have already figured out what works, what gives you best absolute strength, absolute endurance and strength endurance. They already know how to do it. And they always start with basics. You know, how steady is the joint for your sports? They would be looking at your glycogen shuttling. You know, how healthy are you? Well, if you're wasted after your Spartan race, it probably takes you 14 to 21 days for your body to fully recover. You're already back into your training mode, correct? So you're actually overtraining physiologically because you're not recovered from your last race because you went at 100%. But what if you came into that race at 120, won it at 90%, you still have that 10% margin of error to cruise. You recover from your competition, like you said, your fifth or sixth hardest workout. You, you're ready to go the next day. Oh, man, can I go for another long run? I don't think I got anything from that, you know? So it's, it's a whole different philosophy, you know, where you, you train for overtime in the Super Bowl. Don't train to make it through the fourth quarter. You train to make it through overtime. And, you know, extra innings, that's a whole different philosophy. You handle things, you know, all oh, the sandbag. What's what's a sandbag weigh, Kirk, usually? Uh, if they give us a single, probably 60 pounds, but we'll often get like doubles at 50. Yeah. So it's anywhere between 60 and 120, I will say. Depending. Yeah. So they would say you put a rucksack on and put 170 pounds on it. Go, <laughs> you know, and you just overtrain like that. And when you when you do get 100 pounds, you're like, are you kidding me? Did a mosquito land on me? What is this? You know, it's another Hunter McIntyre philosophy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. We could stop right now and there'd already be a lot for people to take out of this. Oh yeah. This is like taking a drink from a, from a fire hydrant. You had two questions. <laughs> I do. Well, the funny thing is that we've done what Kirk now a hundred and 10 episodes, maybe 124. So it'll wow. be 125. And this is the fifth episode I'm taking notes while we talk because it's valuable enough. Oh, thank you. Sometimes I, I I make a mental note, but it's to the point I'm writing stuff down because this is <laughs> this is necessary for us to remember because we get locked in our lane of focus. Yeah. So so a lot of this is what I teach and I call it is dynamic equilibrium. Dynamic equilibrium. So there's a balance between the metabolic um, resources needed to perform your athletic event. And I'm being very general, covers all sports. So your metabolic, your, your ability to do that, your nervous system, like in my sport of weightlifting, powerlifting, I need to contract every single muscle fiber at once and control the weight. That's totally different than what you guys do because you have to maintain stability going up a hill. But so you have you you have metabolic resources and then the nervous system. What's the coordination between using those muscles? Because for an endurance athlete, you're not using the prime movers all the time. Your body, if you study it, the Russians already did it. You, you know, if you throw that sandbag over your shoulder, you probably see that your core tightens up, you know, your lumbar paravertebrals, your glutes, your quads, but then they'll take a break and it'll rotate to different parts of your body. And that's where you need that stability. Um, you know, a good way to look at it is, is your core. Your core, well, what muscles are we talking about? Quadratus lumborum, psoas, 
uh, transverse abdominis, obliques, internal, external, rectus abdominis. They don't all contract the same way at the same time. Even though you tighten your core, you may just be doing eh, 80% rectus now. You get up that hill, eh, the transverse abdominis takes over. You come down the hill, oh, the obliques take over. So part of that dynamic equilibrium is making sure there's a balance and not a weak link because the weak link of the chain is always going to break. Now, that also can be globally looking at your whole training routine. You know, for lifters, it's like, what is our flexibility? That's usually our weak link. It's never joint stability, you know, because we're freaks because you use heavy weight. So why aren't you doing prehab and doing stretching? You know, get that 300-pound lifter in a yoga class. Really, that's what they should be doing. You guys should say, do what you, your hunter guy does and start handling heavy weights just to tighten up the joint. So when you're carrying those 100 pounds of sandbags, nothing gives. You're able to call, you're able to call upon that joint to be stable through the entire race. Okay? And that's totally different. Um, you know, like the training I give a lot of endurance athletes to say, when's the last time you did glycogen training? You know, if you're a strength athlete, because, you know, if you're doing hit all the time, you're just blowing out your mitochondria. For those listening, mitochondria is the powerhouse of each cell. You actually will teach your mitochondria to um, give everything out at once instead of holding reserves back. So there's ways of training um, that the Soviets used years ago for endurance, not to kill yourself, but just go to that edge where you're constantly learning how to shuttle glycogen to sugar into the muscle. And, and then even during a race to not get rid of all your glycogen at once. I was going to say something crass, but it's PG 13, but you don't want to blow that all at once. Listen, know? Fred, we have not had a single episode without the little E for explicit next to the okay. episode. Well, okay. Well, you don't want to blow your mitochondria wad at all at <laughs> once, right? You just don't. You want to be able to hold that back as a strength athlete. So if you have to sprint toward the end or you have an event that skill-wise you're terrible at, you want to be able to call upon those resources now. So there's a different way of training for that, you know? And it's not hit and it's not, you know, long runs or short runs or hills. So. And. And, oh, you want to know how to do it? Okay. It's real simple. It's a lot of sets. So say you set up for a deadlift and you're going to do deadlift and clean and jerk. You're going to do the entire activity in one minute. Okay. So you would go, you well, excuse me, the entire activity in 20 seconds with a 40 second rest, maybe up to a minute. So you'd say pull a deadlift, one set of 20 reps, bang, put it down. And you gotta go fast, right? Boom, 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 boom. You put it down, you rest 40 seconds, but no longer than a minute. And no, if you go into a minute and a half, you're done. If you don't rest, like they're doing CrossFit, they keep jumping around and all that. I'm like, that's that's good, you know, to get to have lactic acid tolerance, you know, but, you know, why don't you just hit your head against the wall too? And you build up a tolerance for that. That's dumb. So <laughs> then you would take about a minute, the 40 second rest and you do it again, 40 second rest, do it again, 40 second rest, do it again. And you do 15 to 20 sets. So, 
And so that's a different way of looking things, you know, and that's, that's more glycogen shuttling training, you know, where you're, you're just teaching your body to give just enough because your, your activities, you know, five to 20, five to 20 seconds, but you're going to get rest. So the mitochondria can say, Oh God, good. I'm getting oxygen. You know, let me convert that glucose that's floating around back into glycogen. If I'm not mistaken, looking at like ATP regeneration charts, um, we're about 97% restored at 90 seconds of rest. So, so, and then it's very small incremental yep. gains after 97. It takes longer to replenish to 100. But is, is the purpose to to not allow ATP to fully regenerate and train and train it to be to work hard while we're already compromised, we'll call it. Is that what we're really getting at? Swinging a hit. Actually, what you're training is to hit that, bring that 90 seconds to 40. Could you imagine if you regenerate your ATP in 40 seconds? That'd be nice. So you have to slowly bring that down and that's what you do it for. What does this sound like, Kirk? This sounds like cruise intervals. Never yep, tip over. That's what it is. Take yep. no more than 60 seconds Correct. and go again. Always in control, always comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah. But build up high volume sets. Exactly. High volume sets. But here, here's the only difference. You you want to start limiting the rest. So this is where the athlete has to have some intuition because there's no way to, you know, draw blood every minute from you and measure, right? There's just no way. So what we would have to do is, okay. I took 90 seconds rest. Next time I'm going to do 89 seconds. You know what I'm saying? Then 88. Then, you know, get it down to, hey, you know, in 30 seconds, I restore all my ATP. I can have a conversation. I'm good. I feel good. Like you say, comfortably uncomfortable. That is like that glycogen shuttling. That is amazing because here's the thing. When you're at your peak performance and you really need to, you know, compete, your mitochondria will slowly release the energy. You're not going to die 10 yards from the finish line. But that's that's metabolic training. So, and that should be worked in too. That that takes time and that that's more like discipline though. Oh mm -hmm. man, I got to do 88 seconds. Yeah, that's how you have to do it. In powerlifting, if we want a a 50 pound increase in a year, we have what called chips. We have little plates that weigh 50 grams, you know what I mean? And we throw it on, and that's what you're using this week. And you constantly add weight until like, oh, your 500 bench is now 550. But if you looked at him, you know, on week 50, he's doing 501, 502, 500. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It looks, it's the discipline you need, you know. And but that's how the body responds, you know. If you do those slow things for metabolic, so for your strength and endurance general training. You want that variation. You want those different tempos. But for metabolic, and this just has to do with health of everyone. If you got a cold, you slowly get better. If you have the flu, you slowly get better. If you have an injury, a cut, you know, you fall down and skin your knee. It doesn't heal in waves, right? How's it heal? Slow and steady. So if you're working your cell metabolism, follow the principles of biology, and that's where you do that. I hate to use the word Western periodization, but it is that slow steady. But then for training your nervous system, your muscles, you want to muscles for strength and muscles for peak contracture. You want to do waves where you go up and down and up and down like that. So it's two, you have to have both systems going at the same time. Absolutely.
All right, you said something a few minutes ago, maybe many minutes ago, uh, that really intrigued me. You said that what happens an hour in or two hours when you're so exhausted and now you can't respond muscularly. That is something yes. we see in endurance sports all the time. All the time. Um, at, at a very base level, you'll see at the end of a race, oftentimes on the track or on the road, when people are vying all in this queue to get ready for the final sprint, someone will stumble. Yep. And some athletes get right back up to it and can go. And the vast majority of athletes cannot recover from this huge damaging hit that just mm -hmm. one stumble has when they have to re-engage everything to catch themselves and yeah. re-accelerate. It just depletes them to the point where they're done. And mm -hmm. then on the far end of the spectrum in, in the sport of obstacle course racing, you'll see people who can deadlift three, 380, 400 pounds get to a depleted point in a race and they can't flip a tire anymore or nope. they fail a strength obstacle that is not difficult for them. Yeah. So obviously it's because you're in a depleted point, but what would you do in terms of stay power strength that doesn't get damaged by cardio hits. And that is training the mitochondria. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So you you want to train for overtime. And the only way to do that is, as Kirk was saying, you know, science says what, 97% at 90 seconds. You want to, you can, you can manipulate that. Look at the cheetah. They manipulate it. So you want to, you want to manipulate that all the way down to 40 seconds, 30 seconds. So there's a steady release of ATP, not in bursts. That burst is normally how human physiology works. So I'm chasing a uh, saber-toothed tiger with a spear. I run, run, run. I throw it. And then we go, ah, killed it, right? We recover. You know, you're playing basketball. There, there's a whistle. Oh, it's penalty or timeout. Oh, I can recover. Um, why not just train the body to be constantly releasing that? So that's that more ATP training. So like I said, you have to, have, if you're an endurance athlete, you have to, have to do both at the same time. You know, it, you know, you should be able to do 380 if your max is 450, you should be able to do 380 for a bunch of reps. And then because that's your 90% and you recover in 30 seconds and then you go to your next event. So that, that is very disciplined training. So it also means that for that type of training, if you're having a very good day, you don't push it. You follow your program, which is very tough. You have to let the ego go because there's going to be a bad day, right? We all have those, and you just can barely get what your program calls for. But physiologically, if you follow that program to the letter at the end of the meet, oh, wow, this is easy. I can flip that tire now. And that's harder because a lot of this is psychology. You know, every, everyone's testosterone, including the women, come into play where they want to, oh, I'm going to flip the tire 10 times. I'm having to, no, you got two flips and you got to time it. And, you know, just let's just work on that glycogen moving. It's, it's more that systematic, you know, understanding of dynamic equilibrium between, you know, glycogen shuttling. Can you call those energy reserves when you need them? And that takes a different type of training, just not going out and running around the block and up some hills and I'll go fast, I'll go slow. And that, that it's totally different. You have to slowly train those cells to, to work um, in a depleted uh, condition. And to do that, you have to get the mitochondria to work all the time. It's the same thing with working at high altitude, 
You know, it's a slow, slow change. You're changing physiology. So I like when people work that kind of thing into their routine. So they, they're always ready for overtime. Okay. You walked me into that then. Working okay. that into my routine. Let's say I'm ready to start doing, we'll start with your deadlift example. Let's say okay. I deadlift 300. So I'm going to start with 220, 225, yeah. do reps for 20 seconds, rest for 40. Is that a standalone workout where I hit several workout exercises like that? Do I tack it on at the end of an existing strength day? How does that, how often does that happen in a strength routine? You vary it. Great question. You vary it. You would do it in the morning. You, you would work this in through your training cycle. Um, you know, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever you use to get in shape for a big race. We're not mm -hmm. talking about little ones, you know. So if you're training 16 weeks, you'd have one day where it's in the morning, one day where it's in the afternoon, one day when that type of training is in the evening. You know, you would mix in like, say, clean and jerks or a rowing machine, row as hard as you can for 20 seconds and then 40 second rest. You would rotate maybe two or three different exercise or movements on that specific day but you want to vary the time. Then you want to vary pre-workout, post-workout, and in-workout. The ones who do it in-workout, they get amazing results. Like say you have a long run. You know, I'm supposed to put in 15 miles today. Okay, ready for this? At seven and a half miles, you run back to the box and you do this for 20 minutes. Then you get back and you start your timer for the seven and a half. That is that you just be amazed the results that happen because then you get out on your normal race and you're like, I don't have to stop and do deadlifts and clean and jerks. Oh my goodness, this is easy. You know, I'm gonna get on the phone and play on Facebook as I'm winning. You know, you don't know anything about how we train. Well, maybe you, I shouldn't say that. Sorry, you don't know how we coach or train for this sport necessarily, specifically our athletes and ourselves. And you're out, you're outlining techniques that are what we call compromised running. And compromised running is where you do things that over fatigue your system and then still get back to a hard workable run rate. And that way, when the race comes and the demands happen, these aren't hits that we haven't seen before. And in fact, we often feel better in the race because it's not as compromised as our training. So I just find it's funny that you don't really, this isn't your world, but intuitively you're already like you understand the body and what we're doing well enough to say that. And I'm just, I'm actually very impressed with, with the fact that that's where you went with that question. That's all I wanted to say. What do you think of that? Well, I'm glad you're impressed, but I, I like to say this, and this goes for any sport. If you don't train in concert with normal human biology and physiology, you're doomed to fail. I say it all the time. Is that mm -hmm. how your body works? You know, well, you know, I didn't have any protein this morning. And I'll tell my athletes, is that how your body works? You know, <laughs> oh, you know, I, I ate right before I came in or I ate right before the race. Is that how your body works? So if you understand the biology and how, how our body works, you can adapt it to any sport, that training. You just have to know what's the outcome. Last question about that specific metabolic improvement, uh, mitochondria training. What sort of frequency do you see throughout a 16-week cycle? Do you front load and then go into maintenance, or is this like just a one a week throughout? How do you, how do you implement that? So like I said, this isn't in the waves, right? We're not trying to build up the muscle. We, this, is, this is not in the waves that you Correct. usually would do training. This is metabolic training, like sleeping. Do you front load sleeping? No. Do you front load your diet? And No. You're training the cell. So it always has to be there. 
as soon as you stop doing it as say, say your rates for get good results you need once a week. Most people would start it twice a week, but can maintain once a week. And you get your ATP restorative um, time down to 50 seconds, which is a great goal when it's 90 seconds, right? For 97%. So if you don't do it every day, you know what? how the body, it'll stop doing it. Oh, I'm going to skip it. I'll do it next week. You could pop back up to 70. You're not talking about, oh, you skipped a, a workout and you're a little rusty, but you can work back into it after a week of vacation. Doesn't work like that. Try to miss a week of sleep and see what happens. So we're training the, the biology, the cell. That's always got to be there. That means if you're injured, guess what? You still have to do that, met, that find a way to do that mitochondrial training. One to, twi- once so to twice a week, anymore. every week, whether you need every it or week, not. Till you don't want to win anymore. Till you don't want to win anymore. Perfect. Yep. And do you think this is one of those instances where you pair the exercise that's, is there an exercise that's mitochondrially most effective or do you use sports specific exercises for it? Great question. That's the best question I've heard in weeks. Um, And this is where you guys come into place. Really, you guys come into play. Um, I wouldn't understand your sport. So you want to be sports specific. You know, I, you know, maybe the clean and jerk doesn't have any carryover for what you do. I mean, I would think the deadlift would because you're lifting things, you know, but maybe pull-ups because you're going over obstacles. That's a better, you know, carryover. So you want to pick something that your nervous system recognize, oh, yeah, I do this every day. I do this on race day. You know, you don't want to try something new the the day of the competition. That's always terrible. It never goes well, you know, and I see that. I see people that... um in different endurance sports, they're like, oh, I have this type of bike. And, you know, I, if it's a road race, you got to get on the road, right? You're, you're, you're at home trainers, fine, putting the wheel up and spinning all the time. Yeah, maybe you should just use that for metabolic training, but you have to be on the road because it's a lot different having wind in your face. I'm very big for sports-specific training. Like for our lifting we have a platform built that looks just like the one you will have in a meet. Everything is exact. We actually set up chairs where the judges would be and our partners sit in them and judge them. We, we train like we're at the contest every time. We just bring it to 110%. So I'm big on environmental cues. And you know this is true too. Kirk, you probably, you know, you're heading up a hill and you look up and you're like, oh my God, I didn't know it was that high, right? You just, you just released a little bit of cortisol, right? You dropped your dopamine and you're like, shit, you just physiologically screwed yourself. So there's a lot, like, like you're saying, sports specific for the mitochondrial training and make sure it's in a good environment, you know? In other words, no machines, you know? Um, and, and find something that it, if it, t- it may take you a year to bring it down to 50. You're not going to let that go once you get there. <laughs> You know, Kirk, I know I'm derailing this entirely, but I'm really, really intrigued by this. No, he's writing his program up right now. Well, I'm I'm comparing notes here because I started reading a book last week by Jacques DeVore and it's called Maximum Overload for Cyclists. Okay. And he's has a a background where he was a wrestler and a Olympic lifter and then got into cycling and realized there's this dearth of knowledge where cyclists don't know lifting and lifting lifters don't know cyclists. And so they're 
they're slow to try to help each other because they're not totally confident to do it. But he saw like we can have massive benefits from pairing the two. But his big, big premise of maximum overload for cyclists is pairing an end of each set twice a week to start once a week for maintenance of essentially what you're describing here. And his is based around weighted explosive walking lunges for no more than 12 to 20 seconds at a time, rest 15 to 40 kind of thing. And it's it's interesting it's that the tw training. twice yeah. now in the past week, I've had two different people from two different types of mindset preach the same principle. No, that that's that's metabolic training. It's fantastic. Yep. He stumbled into it, you know. Yeah, That's and he, he admits it. He stumbled into it trying to figure out something else, mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out cooling areas of your skinless areas of your body in order to regenerate muscles during exercise. Mm -hmm. Stumbled into that because of the rest periods you had to take to cool your skin. So yeah. totally by accident, stumbled into the mitochondria training. But it's interesting, again, that two different resources in a seven day span confirm this one little piece that I haven't had in my training. Oh, there you go. So, so now you don't have to train like a toddler anymore. So, you know, strengthen yourself. And that's not a slight. I mean, I know I, I've worked with bodybuilders too with 30 inch arms or whatever. I'm being funny, 24 inch arms. And they still train like toddlers. You know, they don't train their metabolism. They don't train their nervous system and they don't follow biology, you know? And so the main thing is, like you said, he stumbled into it because that's a biological principle of learning to train your cells. Why would you want to slap on muscle, increase your cardiac and lung efficiency through endurance training, and one, not have stronger joints or stronger mitochondria? And those are the people that get stuck at state level, I call it, or regional level. Um, I don't like training for the state or region. I mean, we live in Minnesota. Come on. I don't want to do a meet in Burnsville. Um, I want to go to the big nationals or the, or the worlds, you know, and so do you guys. So it, it's constantly, we're like, you know, the only way to train that way, mature adult training, I call it, be a full grown adult and train all aspects of your body. Just not the pretty ones you see on the beach. These are the people that on paper should be winning, but are taking 10 through 12. Yes, correct. All the time. And that includes like, I like, I like working with boxers, you know, that's, you know, you would think powerlifting would be my favorite sport. It's not. It's boxing. But I have a, I have a glass chin. You should do some boxing. But they, they actually, boxing has always incorporated this. Always incorporated this. You ever seen how they do things and there's like a little sound, dee, and then they move to something else, dee. They're always doing 20 to 30 seconds of hard activity, 30-second rest, go back. They're always doing glycogen training. But then they'll go out on the road and run, right? And then they'll do heavy lifting. So they mix that. But they're always doing metabolic training. That's like where these MMA and these boxers, you know, they can stand up and swing their arms. They can do 300 reps hitting somebody, you know, and 15 minutes later, they're still looking at you. Okay, is the fight still going? All right, we'll keep going. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, but that's because they've been metabolic training. But I'm sure Rocky Balboa didn't know that's what it was. That was just traditional way to do boxing training. You know, it's just boom, 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 break, go, boom, 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 break, break. And they're constantly doing that. They do it all day, though. They, they just don't do 10 or 20 sets. You know, they're there for hours doing that kind of stuff. So why not, why not take what the boxers knew and the Soviets knew 
and apply it to your cyclists, your triathlon athletes, your Spartan, you know, it, the body's the body. You just got to take that biological principle and say, okay, how can I use the, the science of how my body works? It's not going to change. You can't magically change the, the laws of biology. I'm going to work with it to make it more efficient. So, you know, joint stability, strengthen your joints and strengthen your mitochondria. And then you do your normal training. Bracken, do you have follow-up questions to that? Otherwise, I'm going to pivot slightly. No, the other one I have, I think, is good for, for later or or next time. It, it doesn't fit the flow. Okay, well, mine doesn't either. But so something I think you can speak knowledgeably about, and this is a question uh, or a situation that we battle with often in our sport, right? And in your powerlifting meets, often you want to be as strong as you can for your size because there's weight classes. Correct. Well, in OCR, obstacle course racing, we want to be as strong as we can with carrying the least amount of mass possible, right? Absolutely. At some point, being too big and strong, you see a decreased return on investment and it can be detrimental. So you want to be as strong as you can, but also light enough to still run quick, right? That You need them both Correct. in sport. So my question for you is, in your opinion – what do you believe is the best type of approach to strength training where you'll see most return on investment strength wise with a small increase in like biomass? So you can't do, if you're doing your strength portion of your, your routine, you can't go over five repetitions because then you go into hypertrophy, your muscles start growing. And this is a hard thing. You can do um, light weights, like for the example, you said 220 pounds of deadlift. I, you know, I would do 135 because you're training your mitochondria. You don't want, you don't want bulky mass. It's, it's detrimental for what you want to do. Here's the thing. And I don't see runners do it. I don't see racers do it. You got to do singles and heavy doubles because the idea is to teach your muscles to contract. Kirk, you already have enough muscles to deadlift say 600 pounds right now you do if mm. if your baby got caught under the car you'd lift it up okay but that's because in that um moment you're contracting every muscle fiber you have you'll probably tear the muscle off the bone right but you're contracting everything you have so the goal is for your lighter athletes to contract as many muscle fibers as possible without injuring the tendon and that comes from, again, back to stability, you know. So you're, you're constantly what I call training the GTOs, um, fancy word for Golgi tendon organ. So in our, in our tendons, every one of them, we have the special nerve fiber that basically shuts the muscle down when it's fatigued and it's about to tear. And as a lifter, you're constantly trying to bring that edge. And we have ways of doing that. We use chains, bands. We do everything to confuse the nervous system. But to keep it simple, you know, if you're a 130-pound runner, you know, why are you using 80% of your deadlift max for sets of 10? You're going to put on muscle. You want to put on strength, right, not muscle. They should be doing singles and doubles and triples. I think it's a misconception in the strength world that, you know, lower reps and high weight equals more muscle. And higher yeah. reps and lower weight equals less muscle. It's a very, very, very big misconception in this world. So I'm very yeah. glad you backed that up because when we go, when I assign athletes into our strength building phase, we're doing heavy sets of fives and we'll even work them down to threes. Perfect. But I just wanted to confirm that my sentiment was correct there as far yeah. as building strength without size. 
I also want to follow that up then. So I'm glad you confirmed what I <laughs> what I preach. I also want to follow that up with single uh, single leg movement versus mm-hmm. parallel stance movements like squat and deadlift versus yep. let's say Bulgarian split squats, box step ups, pistol squats, anything like that. Do you do you really believe that in an endurance sport where we're going, you know, one single leg in front of another, is there is there true application for like parallel stance squats and deadlifts, or would it make more sense to split our pelvis in all of our training, like lunging and split squats and step ups and yada yada? What do you think about that conversation? Oh, great question. I'd rather have you guys lunge all day long. You, you want to be sports specific. If you're running forward, you're throwing your leg over an obstacle, that's how you want to train. So you want that foot out in front of you. You want your eyes to see it. So, here, you know, this is how your brain works. Your eyes see that foot in front of you. Oh, I know what that means. Let's contract all the muscles. So if I try to do a lunge now or throw my leg over something, probably hurt myself. Because my, my brain would not contract what I needed to stay safe. So I, I agree with you. I, I like isolating, um, you know, each side. It's not to say you shouldn't work in some, uh, you know, squats. Because, um, you know, it will build that strength quickly. But if you the more you can do on that, you also work in balance too. And I like working the vestibular system, it's called. Um, and you guys, because I don't want you twisting your ankles going down a hill. So you have to do balance and get them lunging. I totally agree with you. Well, the reason I ask, uh, the other part, the reason I ask is we talk about, you know, nervous system runs everything and nervous system stimulation and things like that. Well, a heavy deadlift is going to put more stress on your nervous system yes. than let's say a heavy split squat. So there's that, there's that, there's that argument to be made, right? Like even though let's say a heavy squat isn't necessarily sport specific, but is the return on investment for your nervous system being stimulated still worth keeping it in? That's kind of what I'm actually getting at. Okay. Yes. So I like putting those variations in. So, you know, you should be squatting at least once or twice a month if you have good form. More for the novice or intermediate state level, they need to do it more just to get the form down. But someone like you, Kirk, who's advanced and what do you get second in your last race? You're more advanced. You know, you don't need to squat more than twice a month because just to remind yourself of the form, you know, you should be doing more single leg movements and working on that stability. You've already b- built your foundation. That's Isn't that interesting, Bracken, to hear like, oh, twice a, twice a month? Yeah. So, so I guess that's a, that's an interesting topic for me is what is the, what would you call it, the lowest viable dose you can have of a strength exercise in order to make it worthwhile and not totally atrophy that that motion and that power twice a month so so it's already been the russians already figured it out and a lot of top power lifters um oh i just interviewed oh brian carroll he just squatted 1300 pounds on Hmm. my podcast at like 308 He's, he's an amazing guy has a busted back great story but the thing is, you can't train that heavy, um, that kind of weight. You can't train over a thousand pounds more than every fourteen days. When I was training my squat back, back at my peak, it was every ten days. So deadlifts every ten days, squats every ten days, bench because it's smaller every seven to eight days. 
So there was no Monday, Wednesday, Thursday routine. You know, I had to have a calendar and I had to move my whole schedule around because I followed biology. And I guess that's why I was so successful. Um, if you call that in the eighties, I mean, I pulled 800 as a teenager cause I only deadlifted every 14 days. Everyone thought I was crazy back in the eighties, middle eighties. And I'm like, I can't recover. So my coach goes, well, go every other day. You're not going to forget how to do that shit. Okay. And he didn't know he was following biological principles and twice a month. And, um, I obviously uh, didn't lose anything. I think my teenage world record still stands, you know? So, so there's something to that, especially with endurance athletes. It, once they got the form twice a month is the, is all you need. You progress on twice a month. I know, I know some power athletes that go every 18 to 19 days. You're like, how can they keep their size? I don't know. Cause they're squatting a thousand for five sets of five. That's why, you know? Well, when you're hitting it, you're hitting it. Yes. People hit a big effort or they hit a race. And I say at minimum, it's nine to 10 days for your body to physiologically yes. adapt to exercise and also yes. recover. And it's good to hear you echo that because I throw that around a lot. And so somebody will have a big race and say, I've taken it easy. And then one week later, they go out and they shit the bed on a workout or another race. And I say, well, the problem is, is you resumed your training as you were after between races and you're, you may feel okay in life and your energy yeah. came back and you can walk down the street with a pep in your step but when it's time to go. And it's time to cellularly dig. It's yep. still not there yet because it's enough time. It's not enough time in between necessarily, especially because you didn't you didn't navigate the between race period time perfectly either. So like, I didn't know it could be extended out that long. So the same principle I feel like would apply to to hard workouts. Could you get away with a hard workout every ten days in yeah. the running world and maybe still maintain or build fitness? But that yep. one every ten days is like I hate my life inside out. Yes. Oh maybe. yeah. It's just like interesting to think about, I guess. And I've seen the once every 10 day type of, uh, you know, hitting it at 95 to 110%, whatever that is. Um, it's amazing how you continue to progress. So, it, you know, I remember I was working with a Russian coach once and it took me to, I was like <clears throat> 45 to figure out what he said to me as a teenager. He goes, Fred, there is no such thing as overtraining. And I'm thinking, this guy's an idiot. What do you mean? Fred, there is only under recovery. Yeah. So part of that, like looking at the, the, the client's lifestyle, do they get enough sleep? What's their nutrition like? You know, bad nutrition, um, bad nutrition and a great training program won't give you the best results. Vice versa, and you guys can throw tomatoes at me because this is what I've been alluding to. It's a little controversial. You can have the best nutrition, but if you don't have the, the best training program, if you're not following biology, guess what? You're not going to get the best results like joint stability, like training your mitochondria. So I'll have athletes come and tell me, I eat so clean. Look at my diet and all this. I said, who cares? You're not even pushing it. You're recovering for a 60% toddler workout. You know, go back to middle school. You want to grow up and take on the big boys, go to the Olympics or the Spartan National Championship. You have you have to you're eating. Why are you eating this way? It's good for your body. It follows biology. So why aren't you training to follow biology? You have to have both, not either or both. 
So you're describing right now, A, the mindset that people need to change, but B, the reason so many people don't train following biology. Because the stress recovery adaptation cycles vary from exercise to exercise, and that requires actual planning and thought. And people run into that concept we talked about last week, Kirk, where the enormity of the task up front, all the new information is so big that you turn away from it and say, I'm going to go back to seven-day schedules because it's clean and I get it. Whereas if you put the time in researching, the enormity breaks down and now you unlock true stress recovery adaptation cycles that you can time for different types of workouts. Exactly. I'm going to use my wife as as an example. Um, At the World Championships in October in Chicago, um, at about 150 pounds, she squatted 562. She's a freak, by the way. Yeah, she's a freak. But there's something important there. She was going to midwifery school. So I was studying and all that. So her recovery wasn't good. She would come in on a Tuesday looking to squat. And we would look at her and say, you look like horse shit through the warmups. Why don't you do it Friday? So she had a rotating, you know, um, schedule. Oh, I'm supposed to squat today, but I'm moving it to Friday. We're moving based on recovery. Now, that's where you need coaches, people like you that are smart and somewhat and some intuition too. a lot of these uh, young young clients you have, and I mean, young inexperienced, sorry, I should use that better word, inexperienced, newbies, state level, local level, maybe even regional level athletes, they don't know their bodies enough where they can say, I need to skip this workout and I need to do something at 60%. I can't do it 100% workout. Let, let me move it. Hey, coach, what do you think? Am I recovered? You know, and you know what, too, you get out there and you're running, you feel, you like you run like a toddler who doesn't know what they're doing because you are not recovered. Your nervous system is not recovered. So like you said, yeah, it, it's enormous. It's a lot easier to say, I'm going to train four days a week. Here's my miles. Here's my tempo. Here's my variation. I'm doing this for, for 10 weeks and you don't get the results. Since we are not static like a car, we can't train like a car. If my carburetor is bad, I put a new carburetor in. Can't do that with a human. So we are going to vary day to day. And this all came out of what the Bulgarian weightlifting team did. They changed their routine, not CrossFit workout of the day. They trained, changed their intensity day to day according to uh, how the athlete recovered. A lot of them still do it. You know, they'll do pee tests and look for nitrogen and protein in the urine. They'll check blood pressure. If you got a four or five tick rise in, in um, a diastolic, they're like, nope, you're overtrained. We're changing things. They, I mean, they had immediate feedback and they would train up to that point. So when I'm saying 100% or 110%, it's 110% of what you can do that day. So what? That's, that's even a bigger, I mean, can you imagine someone trying to do this on their own? There's no way. There's no way. Not for sure seeing the, the best return on investment. Yeah. With all this recovery talk, obviously, I have to ask more. How, I, it could go any direction with this, but what when you say recover, does that mean sit on your butt and eat potato chips? Does that mean still show up to the gym and do very submaximal stuff? Uh, and this can be applied to endurance training as well. What What does recovery actually mean to you in that sense then? Oh, great question. And I'm glad you asked it. Because I would have ended this podcast and for and I'm like, people are going to sit down, eat potato chips and watch Netflix. No, active recovery. 
so you're always working on the anastomosis of your capillary beds, you know, for recovery. So we actually not only grow muscles, we grow capillaries, right? In, in our muscles and whatever. And so the more, the more tubes you have, the more roads you have to get lactic acid out, the better you are. So active recovery for me would be, so let's go back to my wife's example. She comes in, looks like horse crap. And I'm like, okay, all right. You know what? You're, you're going to squat heavy on Friday, but why don't we put two and a quarter on, you know, which would be like, what, 30%, 40%. And let, let's just do some real slow and tempo reps. Let's fill with blood, you know, and let's get on the treadmill and walk and let's do some stretching. Um, I like cross training. There's a great powerlifter in the 80s named Fred Hatfield. He's one of the first guys to squat a thousand. And his was playing basketball. He'd do a pickup game on, on the days he couldn't recover. And he'd just warm up and he'd find some local kids and he would do it every week, you know, just to run back and forth, whatever, you know, going at 30, 40% just to get the recovery. And that that's real important. That's a great question. Um, the only time you don't move. And is right after an acute injury. When I say recovery, that's movement. Now, maybe slow movement. Um, powerlifters, we use a lot of walking now. That's really big. We're actually just go for a walk around the block. You know, we we'll do some walking. Oh, I got to get this lactic acid out. Oh, I'm sore. My joints hurt. You know, go to the swimming pool and do some walking in the swimming pool. Deload it, right? Because the water deloads you. Deload it. That's a great way to recover. And but you no, you're absolutely right. I am glad you said that because it was unclear. You're always moving. Sorry, you don't get sit on the couch if you're an athlete. You know, when you want to sit on the couch, that's when you want to stop winning. So I like it. I, that that's the same principle as um, you know, we take recovery run days where we go out and run very low percentage of yes. max start rate, and we we put the time into flush work. Re make sure the body knows what it's doing. Similar principle. I just was curious on the strength front if what what you're it's not like you're not squatting for 14 days. You may go do some submaximal range of yes. motion stimulation type yes. stuff. When it's time to go, it's only time to go every 14 days, let's say. Correct. Got it. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're still gonna do your workout, but you're not recovered. So all right, I'm gonna squat at 30%. I'm gonna do three sets of 10. My first set, I'm gonna do slow tempo. The second one, I'll do a medium tempo. The last one, I'll do explosive. It's so light, you're not going to tax anything except open your capillary beds, get a quote-unquote pump, and uh, move, move some gunk around. And again, you're, you're moving. Bracken, what questions do you have left? I have one. Well, the, the biggest one we get from runners, and, and I, I like to remind myself because it's been a long time since I was in the boat of I've been running for a long time, but I haven't been lifting, and lifting destroys me. Yeah. So the big question is, when in my week is it most beneficial to myself to avoid injury and to keep my recovery adaptations in order to lift? Is it my, am I doing upper or lower on certain days? Am I doing it after big workouts? Am I doing it on the same day? Can I pair some with recovery to stimulate some, some chemical release in my body? Where do you personally think it's best to place your lifts amongst your running workouts? If, if you're an endurance athlete, you're always lifting in the morning. If you're a male, testosterone is highest in the male um, in the morning. Um, that's why we have certain morning physiological reactions. Um, so, 
you know, but that's when you want to do it. You don't want to do it at night or even after your workout or your running workout. So you want a couple, maybe twice a week, you know, lifting workouts. Remember, mitochondria is totally different. You know, you work that once a week and then you have two strength days. You may move those strength days every 14 days to be heavy. And, you know, the, the one you have at day seven, oh, I'm not recovered from, you know, seven days ago, we'll do the 30%. You're still doing weight strength training, but you're not going max out. And that's probably why you destroyed yourself because you never recovered, you know. Weight should never destroy you. In fact, you, it again, even when you're going heavy, if you're fully physiologically, neurologically, musculoskeletally recovered, it's fun. It's absolutely fun. And you go through those and it shouldn't affect your running, especially if you're doing mitochondrial work. You know, so do it in the morning, twice a week. And then don't forget about the mitochondrial training, which is totally separate. Some people just do it once. So you're, it would look like you're lifting weights three days a week. So then in college, where we had quote unquote experts who were coaching us, we would get done with a uh, one of our interval sessions running wise, one of our more difficult workouts. And that was when we go into the weight room afterwards, about 30 minutes after the workout, and they'd have us lift then. Is there a premise to that? Or is that simply they already had us and they weren't going to try to bring us in another time when they couldn't guarantee that we didn't have other classes or things going on? That's not training physiologically. That's training of convenience. Okay. So they probably set you up for failure. Um, I would not want someone deadlifting 200 pounds and their max is 300 after a run. Does that ever happen in reality in the meet? No. Right. So you want to incorporate that more in the morning. You run in the afternoon, evening for those that have to run in the morning um, on your days that you do no running, do your lifts. You know, you, you know, what are you running four to five days a week? Some, some are three, some are seven. So, so on your sevens, you know, you're just going to have to split train, you know, run in the afternoon, evening, do your weights in the morning. Um, With women, it's variable because their cycles every 28 days, ready for this. And we, I, with my, some of my clients I do, I, I go by where they are in their monthly cycle. If they're young enough and still having their period, you got to know where that testosterone is, you know? Estrogen doesn't build muscle, doesn't build tendons. Um, progesterone doesn't build tendons, doesn't build muscle. Testosterone and growth hormone, those are two. Growth hormones released at night when you're sleeping. So we can't train and sleep. So the idea that you can release growth hormone, you know, during the day, if you're releasing growth hormone during the day, you're stressed. That's overtraining. So you got to, the only one, the only variable we can really work with is your testosterone. And I'm like, okay, when is that highest for me? Well, I wake up at six o'clock every morning. That's when you lift. Why would you waste that? You know, now in my sport, you know, we can overcome all that because people use exogenous stuff and buy it illegally and inject it. Um, And in your sports too, apparently Lance Armstrong did the same thing. But if you don't have those advantages, just work with the biology you have. Okay, you know, when am I highest? The testosterone. Some men's it's a little. Some men's a little later. Some it's earlier. Figure out when that is, and then you can get the best results. You know why wouldn't you use what's already there? I mean, there's some Russians that you know have to inject it when you have it being you know circulating at all times. Just use it when it's there. So for like a guy, 
8 p.m. at night, 9 p.m. at night, 10 p.m. There's hardly any test. Why would you even pick up a weight? You're going to get hurt. You're, you're going backwards, you know. So that, that's a hard thing because there's a lot of people that train at night. And you have mm -hmm. to because of convenience, you know. But if in the, in the real world, can you move your training to the best place, you know. Running should be done in the mid-afternoon after two, three hours of being awake. Part of what I think Bracken was also asking, I'm sure you'd follow up with this if I didn't, Bracken, but is it's it has more to do with, okay, let's say in the in our training schedule, our days that really matter where we swing the hammer hard in a run sense is Tuesday and Saturday. Okay. Okay, let's just say that's that's what so we're following. What you would want to do with that Tuesday and Saturday. Well, it's it's where to where do you place the strength in there to not negatively impact your quality run days, but still see strength benefits? It's like, how do we make sure that one doesn't take away from the other? And where do you place those strength workouts within your week based on also because running still comes first, yep. right? So yeah. that's the question a lot of us battle. So, so here's the deal. You set it up. So Thursday and Sunday, you do your runs and or excuse me, you're lifting, your lifting, your strength days are Thursday and Sunday. And, and again, you're varying the intensity compared if you've recovered from the run the day before. If you haven't recovered, you're still doing strength, but you're going at 30%. And that's hard. you got to know yourself. The day after a quality workout, yeah. even if you're a little compromised because you're still fatigued since it's the secondary portion of our sport, you would put it the day after a quality workout? Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And where do you, where do you put your metabolic mitochondria training? Oh, great question. You vary it. You vary it. What, you know, so one week will be Monday. Next one's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm, I'm putting in 15 miles on Saturday. And when you're done, you're going to do this because remember it's constant. We constantly want to train the cells for recovery. So that's just, that's just varied. So you just rotate it all the way through. So when it's that maximal contraction, five reps or less, you are isolating that from any tough work on that day. But if it's that submaximal metabolic work, that can be added anywhere, anytime. Yep, exactly. You still have mitochondria even after a race. And an hour after your 15, your tough workout, 15 miles or 26.2 miles, within an hour, your ATP is back and your ATP needs to be trained. Um, you know, you, you just don't, you know, house train your dog one day and like, okay, he's got it. Doesn't work like that. So you got to train those mitochondria because as a human and your, and your genetics, you have a set point. And you know, the people with those genetic mitochondria, they recover quickly. They're freaks, right? But it can be trained. I can take anyone. Um, good example is my friend Levi, who's an intern in my clinic. He, uh, you know, he wanted to start lifting and get stronger. He was a football player, but his max bench was like 275, um, maybe right out of Cairo school and in, and in high school. And that's a good, you know, D3 linebacker bench, 275. He's getting near 500 pounds now at a lower body weight. Why? Because incremental increases, you know, and of course he cusses me out and, you know, pulls his hair out, whatever, but I'm like, nope, you're going to keep doing it. And we're going to vary the days. 
So, so if you get those, those incremental increases, your mitochondria will be forced to change. All right. I love every part of this. Oh, good, good. I guess I got one more, and okay. we don't even – I don't even know how much we need to touch on it, but just talking with the strength-to-weight ratio subject and, and all of that, I feel like there are some people in our sport who, let's say, are carrying weight they don't need. Not yeah. muscle, but they're carrying weight that isn't isn't serving them okay, okay. in any sense. And so a lot of people have a hard time with overhead work, whether it's a man or a woman, they can't handle their own body weight well, so they fail obstacles. They can't get across the monkey bars. We all know that you know strength to weight is sort of leading the way there. Um, what kind of strength – would those be the same athletes that need to be training power in the same sense, like the five reps or less – uh, to get this stuff done, would you lead them that athlete the exact same way, or is it they don't have enough muscle? Let's say because women sometimes, in gen, I would say more specifically, say I don't have enough muscle. Uh, so again, again, that that makes me just laugh because now I'm fat. I'm a super heavyweight um, lifter, but in powerlifting we have the 114 pound class, 123, 132, 148, 165. You know, 181, 198, 220, 242, 275, 308, and super. Now, with all those 13 weight classes, right, you know, we have somebody on our team named uh, Hunter Hernandez, and he just benched 450 at 132, okay? 132. I can't, I can't fathom that. He came in to us, um, start training with us in the summer at 148. Real short guy, right? And he's probably normally 150. And you're like, you're carrying junk. You bench 420. And I said, that's not near the world record. Why don't you go for the world record? And so he started dieting down and became stronger. How? Like you said, can't go over fives. <laughs> you, you just have to work the nervous system. You want to be able to contract every muscle fiber you have. And women in general, I'm not being sexist, but they're not used to contracting every muscle they have in their upper body. You know, most women, once you they train with you guys, they have enough muscle, but can they functionally fire it when they need to? No. And that's where you need that, that strength training. Don't go over five reps. Well, I don't want to get big and bulky. No, in fact, we want to make you skinnier, but stronger. So the only way that happens is Singles, doubles, triples, singles, doubles, triples, max weight. If they can't do the monkey bars, you know, you have them close grippers. One 1,000, let go. One 1,000, let go. One 1,000, let go. And they're building up, you know, just strength. We don't need any more muscle. We need functional function. But you don't need to carry all that. And you guys shouldn't carry it. it but it has to be functional. I watch like the CrossFit Games or Spartan, and I'll see these guys – they're carrying 10, 15 pounds they don't need. You know, it looked, like I said, it looks pretty on the beach, um, but that's not the goal to get up on top of that soapbox and get the gold medal. Get the gold medal. It's a different sport. So trim the fat, so to speak, and still lift low rep heavy weight, whether that's like weight pull-ups where instead of getting on the assisted pull-up bar and doing 15 reps, get on there and really struggle for three. Correct. Things like that. All right, I, I, I thought that was the case. Um, that's what I believe. I just want to, I want people to hear that because I, you know, I, I do feel like sometimes people are afraid to lift heavy and that yeah, as a personal trainer, 
I, it's all the time I hear put heavy weights in somebody's hands and she goes, I don't want to get bulky. And I have that conversation every other day. And so I just want people to hear that out of someone who's smarter than me's mouth. That's all. Thank you. Oh, exactly. So you're ready for this one. It's easier to get stronger because that's a function of your nervous system than it is to have hypertrophy and get a big arm. It's much easier. And for your sports, you just want to get stronger. That's all you want. And that's really important. In my sport, you know, we have all these weight classes we can pick and choose. And then we have what we call this, this curve that goes for body weight and strength, absolute strength. And to get to that top end, you may have to go up a couple weight classes. Um, but your pound for pound will not be as good. But if you're trying for an absolute weight, yeah, get fat, you know. It's a, that's a totally different view, but yeah, for your athletes, uh, just tell them to get strong. That's good. It's good. It's good advice. As we we're uh, nearing the two hour mark, we did a good job of bullshitting here today. And you, you shared some really good stuff, man. I'm, I've been enjoying this. I, uh, I just want to send more people your way. Um, you have a podcast. We haven't even mentioned it. You have a podcast of your own. Yeah. It's, it's named very simply. It's Dr. Fred Clary's podcast. It's on Spotify, iHeart. All, all the media, um, it's kind of gone viral. I, I'm not as fancy as you guys with the headphones. I just flip over my laptop and talk. But it covers not only, you know, I have a lot of stuff about the, you know, biology, the current pandemic. I interview other lifters and other healthcare providers. And the main thing is health, wellness, and strength. Um, so anytime. And if you have an injury um, or just want some feedback or need a good chiropractor, I'm located in New Brighton. He's in the Minneapolis area. He's in the yeah, Minneapolis area. And that's uh, 651-330-6692. 651-330-6692. All right. Well, I want to close this down selfishly. Okay. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for free advice. Yep. <laughs> so when people say I want free advice, they said I only charge to knuckleheads that are going to have me coach them. That's different. I give my advice all the time. <laughs> My opinion always comes out of my mouth. <laughs> well, five minutes into this interview, you said something that I really wanted to ask, but it was for me specifically. So now I'm asking it for me specifically. You said that oftentimes after injury, you may have your range of motion back, but you know that at full range of motion, you cannot apply force. Yeah. So I had two knee surgeries last year. I'm to the point where my butt can reach down to pretty close to my heels again. Okay. I have that range of motion back. But I feel steady throughout my range of motion. But I know that if I was squatted down in a campfire squat and you put a bar on my back with some weight, I would be very hesitant to explode upwards with that. Yep. And so exactly. for people in that place, what do you do to engage at that place of discomfort or lack of lack of action there? That's where your nervous system is protecting you. And the fancy word is splinting. So you're actually splinting in the bottom of a squat position because of an injury. It's still called splinting, whether you limp or not. So your, your body's splinting and shutting down the muscles and tightening up other ones. The only way to overcome that is that activity over and over and over again. And you would change the range of motions. So you would do a half squat. You do five of those. Then you do a quarter squat and ready for this. This is the secret. Then you drop down to a three quarter squat. 
Okay. So it's not, all right, I'm going um, 50%, 50%, 75%, 80, 90. That's the way everyone stretches out. It's not how the nervous system's wired. You want to go 50, 50, 50, 50, 25, 75, 50, 50, 50, 25, 90. And that's that I mentioned that fancy term GTO, Golgi tendon organ. That's how you confuse them. You have to overcome, you have to overcome the body's own natural protection for the joint. Now, here's the thing: use lightweight because it's mm -hmm. dangerous. I I try not to tell people about GTO work because they always tear themselves up. It's a great thing to keep, you know, me in business, but it's very dangerous. So I would say always have a spotter and be real careful. Just use the bar. Use a broomstick. You know what I'm saying? You don't need weight. You know, you're trying to slowly increase that range of motion. So if, you, if your range of motion, you want to hit 75 today, that's your goal. You would do 50, 50, 50, 25, 75. Done. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You don't stay at 75 because tomorrow you're going to do it again. And tomorrow you're going to do it again. So that's the hard thing because we're so set up for athletic trainers and physical therapy where your insurance got to pay for half an hour, an hour of therapy. So they're going to take you to 75 because they have nothing else to do. That's not how the nervous system reacts. You're trying to shut down that natural protection that the body has, right? So that's the 25. You get it used to 50. You relax it with 25 and then you surprise it while it's got its pants down. You got it. I think they call that PNF back in the day. You remember those stretches mm -hmm. and that someone's pushing, push as hard as you can. And then as soon as you release your GTO shut down and they go further. Um, I always thought PNF stretching is a great way to hurt somebody, but functionally it works the same way. There's that moment where the nervous system say, okay, I'll let a little bit more in and you drop and then you're done, you know, and then the next day you do 80% and then 85, then 90. And again, it's serial. It's it's disciplined. You got to go slow. You can't say, "Oh, I'm feeling good. I got full range of motion." No, you don't. <laughs> you yeah. just presume it's going to take months. Okay. And if you that presumption, and if I'm wrong, good. <laughs> You're still not going to get hurt. <laughs> this has been enlightening. I've actually really. This, I'm glad we finally got you on. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. I'm going to get you guys on my podcast. I. Because I can't wait to the power lifters hear from runners. I'm going to have to take so much grief. <laughs> We're going to open their eyes, Fred. Yeah. We're going to open their eyes. We're going to have them all running 80 mile weeks. We'll have them convinced that 50 miles a week is going to help their deadlift. How do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Some people won't even do 50 feet a week, which is terrible. That's why we have a lot of injuries in our sport. Because, again, they're, not, they're just not training the biology. You need that active recovery. If anyone's listening to this podcast, train for biology, active recovery, joint stability, which is separate, mitochondrial cellular work. I like that word you use, Kurt, dig cellularly. You got to train the cells. We're made of cells. Train them, you know, train the cells. And if you're recovering from an injury, do that little GTO, that modified, um, you know, type of stretching where you're, you're, you're fooling the body a little bit and slowly opening it up. So you turn off that, that splinting mechanism that protects the joint, 
but you're going to get hurt again when you can't get functional range of motion in a race and you hurt yourself again. We always hear the people who twist their ankle. I always have bum ankles. You don't have bum ankles. You have a bum nervous system. Drop the mic. Roll the music. We're Roll out. Roll the music. Thank you, Dr. Clary. Thank you. Thank you.